The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, it's Jesse. I'm bringing you an episode from the archive this week. Jessica Powell landed a dream job, but after a while, it just, it wasn't her dream job. And so she quit. Here's her story. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Some people are born knowing exactly what they want to do. The path is obvious. But for a lot of us, it's much more fuzzy. We end up in our first jobs for all sorts of reasons. Mom told us to go to law school. Uncle Bob offered us an internship. And if things work out, we stick around. Maybe the money is good, or maybe we're traveling up the career ladder. And inevitably, we reach a point where we ask ourselves, is this really the right way for me to spend my time? Do I even like it? Earlier this fall, I talked about this kind of career crisis with my friend Jerry Colonna, the job coach. And it's at that moment that's ripe with possibility. And it's scary. And there are many, many human beings faced with the privilege of being able to come to that moment of potential actualization and choose to walk away from it. And I get that it's safer to stay in a job that you may not love. But this week, I wanted to talk to someone who had done the opposite of safe. Jessica Powell was head of PR for Google. It was a big corporate job, and she didn't hate it. She liked her colleagues. She got paid very well. But for a long time, she was unhappy. She worked all the time. She didn't always feel great about that work. And then she quit. And I I think a lot of us dream about doing that. And yes, I know this is an incredibly privileged position. But listen, that's the kind of thinking that sometimes keeps people in jobs long after they've questioned what they're doing with their time. Our lives are really short. We have to be urgent when we think about our careers. Jessica did just that. She talked a lot about the challenge of figuring out what you love for yourself versus letting your career dictate it, and the strength it takes to quit something you like fine enough when you can't be certain you'll be happier in the future. But first, you have to understand how Jessica got to Google in the first place. She just moved to London. She was 26. Here's Jessica. And so I applied for a ton of jobs, journalism jobs. No one wanted to talk to me. Um, I had no local knowledge and had, didn't have a particularly long or impressive writing resume. But I applied for waitressing jobs. I applied for a CEO job. I applied for every job that was in the Guardian ads. And my husband suggested, he was like, well, you know, why don't you apply to Google? Like a lot of people we know seem to work there. Maybe you'd like that. What and, year are we? Oh, this would be 2006. Okay. And I applied and they called me back and I went in and I totally flubbed my interviews but the woman who who wanted to hire me and who ultimately became my boss uh, hired me as a contractor. So I failed the Google interview process, but got hired on a on a contract. Um, and and so what I remember about the Google interview process is that it's quite onerous. You're you failing the interview process is not exactly a failure in that basically Google at that point in particular really focused on PhDs from upper echelon Ivy League schools or don't bother. Yeah, I think that probably going to Stanford got me in the door, right? Um, they're they're much broader in in who they bring in now. But I think back in the day, it was it was very focused on a handful of universities, which, of course, creates 
a lot of problems. But I think that got me through the door, which was great. But then the interview itself was uh, – it, it wasn't – it didn't necessarily feel like it mapped to my skills. At the same time, I don't know how many skills I really had at the time. It felt like it was being challenging for the exercise of being challenging and almost to intimidate you. You know, one guy came in and didn't look up from his computer the entire time he typed, which is – it wasn't actually that I didn't need eye contact. I didn't need some human connection during an interview necessarily, but it was the typing. I just couldn't focus because it was just tap, 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 tap. And, wait, um, wait. But yeah. let me stop you, Jessica. Yeah. Given the company that you just described, why would you want to go and work there in the first place? Like, why, when the contracting position came up, did you think that was a good idea? Uh, I had rent to pay. You know, I was like, I was very, um, I don't know if, if obsessed is maybe too strong of a word. I was very, I was always very worried about the bottom falling out. And so when I was in New York, I took the job that paid the best of all the journalism jobs I could find. When I got to London, no one really wanted to hire me. And I had rent, you know. And and on top of that, like, I'd heard great things about Google from people I knew who worked there. Right. So that was 2006. And then you spent most of your career there. You stepped out briefly and went to a startup and came back. Tell me what kind of work you did during the time that you were there. So I started off in London. I was working in, because my background had been copyright, working in nonprofit around copyright, it was pretty natural that they were bringing me on as a contractor to work around kind of copyright and press. Google was having a lot of issues with book search then, and then they had a problem with Google News, and then they acquired YouTube, and they had a problem with YouTube. So I was worked, uh, I started working on that. And initially, because Google in Europe was very small then, hard, this is all post-IPO, so it's hard for people to imagine that Google post-IPO was small, but actually in Europe it was. I think we were a couple hundred people, maybe in London, maybe in all of Europe. I don't even remember. And so I was hired in through the communications department, but I did some marketing. I did some product management. I did some policy stuff. And it was great. Like it was it was kind of chaotic and it felt very startup-like. And I started doing that. But then as my career went on, we became more specialized. I started focusing more on communications because they started to build out the European team. And eventually ran um, Southern Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, then went over to Japan, where I'd lived previously, and based out of Tokyo, ran communications there. And then, like you said, went off to a startup in London, and eventually then back to Google, where I then came back and ran communications. And when you say ran communications for Google, and at this point, Google was, how many people was it when you left? Oh, I don't know, maybe 80,000, maybe? So if you think about the relationship that you have with a company or an employer over the course of a decade and a half, rather like a love relationship, um, a romance, let's say, if you think about that relationship like a romance, <laughs> uh, was there a, a sort of a stable part of the relationship followed by a falling out of love? Like what what was the process of being there like? I mean, on the whole, it was great. I think I was given a huge amount of opportunity I met wonderful people, um, people that I'm still close to. What happened by the end was that I felt very burned out. I felt very um, – I felt like I worked all the time. I mean, not just felt. I did. I worked all the time. I felt like my identity was entirely tied to my job. I would go to a party and someone would introduce me or someone would ask what I would do. And there would be this second after I answered or someone introduced me where people would be like, oh, you have that job or whatever. And there might have been a second on my side 
where I would feel good, right? Like, oh, what, what validation, right? People are interested in you. You know, they don't necessarily want to talk to you, but they're all of a sudden interested in you because of what you do. But still, that feels good, right? Like, we're all kind of base creatures, and we all have some level of ego, and that would feel nice. But then a second or two later, it would feel very empty, you know? And it wasn't like I was the most enlightened person in the world, but I could still tell that that wasn't right, you know? Like, it didn't it, – it felt empty. And so I think there had been this thing lurking in my head for my final, you know, two or three years there where I, I, I knew that there was something not right. And there was also part of me that felt like <laughs> you have this job that so many people would want. Why do you not want it? And should you be in it versus walk – like give someone else a chance to do this and also give yourself a chance to do something more or do something different. But I couldn't quite articulate that to myself. I look back at it now and it seems very obvious. But all I could figure out was that I wasn't happy. And it took me two years or three years. There was an essay I wrote on Medium that was about like the 837-step plan to quit your job. And it felt like that to me. It was all the contortions, mental contortions I went through to convince myself that, no, 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 the, the, the job wasn't a problem. I just needed to solve for this or wait until this milestone happened and then everything would be fine then. And I went and like did I did online quizzes, which is ridiculous, like searching on Google to ask if I should quit my job. And some of the stuff that you get when you get that, are, they're, are, they're so extreme. I mean, they're certainly applicable to a lot of jobs, but like, do you hate your boss? Well, I didn't hate my boss, you know, and, 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 and do you dread every single morning going into the office? And I was like, dread is a strong word, you know, and I, I could never really, it was never definitive enough for me. And so I would just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And finally, I realized that the that I just didn't feel in control of my life and that I needed to solve for that, that I needed to figure out how I could take control back of my life. And once I did that, it, it became so much easier. Like once I finally leveled with myself that it wasn't about staying in the job and making that job better or finding a similar job. Like I was going to have the same issues if I went to Facebook or Apple or LinkedIn, wherever it might be. Um, the problem wasn't specifically Google. And so I needed to solve for that. And that's kind of when my process started about how to get out of it. How long did that period take, do you think? Was it, you know, a few weeks, a few months, a few years? Like two years, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah I'd say about two years. Because it really did take me a while to understand that underlying problem. Because I couldn't, I couldn't somehow reconcile. I always thought that quitting your job, when I left my job as the energy markets reporter, for example, it was clear to me. That, there, that this was not for me, that I didn't like talking to traders every single day, um, that I didn't – that that was not my future. Uh, when I left my job at the startup in London, it was clear to me. It was, it was a, I felt like it was a toxic environment and it was clear to me that it, I needed to go. Whereas here, it wasn't so clear. Like I loved my coworkers and there was so much that was good. At the same time, I started to doubt some of the substance of my job. Oh, but those coworkers, I liked them, and I, I couldn't. It just didn't seem like a clear signal, and so it took me a long time to realize. No, no, you need to. Okay, you need to go, and then there was a next a, a period that was also very long. Of okay, if you're going to go, and if you've admitted to yourself that too much of your life and your identity and everything is tied up in this job, what are you going to do when you walk out that door and all of a sudden there's nothing? You know, are you going to be this super chill person that you've never been, and like, you know, hang out? for six months and figure it out and meditate. Like, I, I didn't, I knew that that wouldn't work for me, that, that I, I was used to being very productive and I have a lot of nervous energy and that I needed to channel it into something and that I needed to have something that I could fall into that might not lead to anything at all, but that would give some kind of structure to my day 
and would feel like some kind of purpose of something I always wanted to explore or do um, so that I wouldn't wake up after a one-week vacation, so to speak, and be like, whoa, I just walked away from what some people would see as the best job in communications. And not only do I not have a salary, but I don't know who I am and I don't know what I'm doing with my life. What you're talking about sounds to me like something that I've seen happen and even experienced, which is when you work for an organization and you're with it for a really long time, sometimes that line in between who you are and what you want for your life and who that organization is and what it might want for your path gets blurry. And it becomes easier to just let the organization dictate what your next step should be according to what the next step is that ambitious people do with the organization. And it becomes more and more difficult with every year that you're there to take a step back and say, no, who who am I? What's my North Star? What am I supposed to be doing with this life? And I wonder if that's why a lot of people a third of the way into their career look up and have that moment where they're like, well, I'm, I'm doing the thing. Why doesn't it feel different? And I think there's a lot of self-doubt, right? I, I, I absolutely agree with you. It's also because in a lot of cases, granted, there are cases where the job is clearly bad. Either it doesn't fit with your skills and you figured that out or your manager is horrible. I mean, that happens quite often, right, that people have a bad manager and they, need, they, they don't see any way out but to get away from that manager and therefore the company. But I also think there's just a large bucket of people that are like, well, what is the right amount of happiness that I should find from my job, right? And... I don't necessarily expect that I'm going to be happy 100% or even 90% of the time in my job. It is a job. But is 50% the right amount? And if I leave this job where I'm happy 50% of the time, am I just going off to another thing where I'm going to be 50% of the time happy? And should I really be doing that? You know, and, and so I think there's that calculation, too, where you're just like you don't really know how much of almost your own instinct to trust and how to calibrate all these other options that you might have. So so stepping away from pretty good to see if there's better is actually a really hard thing to do, right? Stepping away from very bad to hope that there's better, you you can predict that better is ahead. But when you step away from pretty good, it's a leap of faith. Right. What happened in your life that finally pushed you to take the step? I went away from my second maternity leave. And I think up until that maternity leave, I had been telling myself, I'd come up with, well, hypotheses or excuses, whichever you want to call it, where I was t- telling myself, no, no, you're you're not happy because you're pregnant. And I, I never really enjoy being pregnant. <laughs> and like, and, and, and it always just, it, like, I found my second pregnancy also very hard, like physically very hard. And I was exhausted all the time. And I was sick all the time. And I said, you need to go away. You need to have this baby. And maybe when you come back, you'll realize that your job is actually much better than you think. Like, you can't trust yourself right now. And so there was enough of a moment where I was heading off a maternity leave where I did tell myself, no, you you need to do something about this um, by the time you come back. And you either need to just stop moaning in your head about it or you really do need to start taking some kind of action. And while I was on maternity leave, I applied to grad school, a grad school that was 10 minutes from my house. It was to do an MFA um, and uh, in fiction writing. And so I thought, you know what, you're going to go do this thing also where you have no gauge for what success is. And you're just going to go learn a skill. Like you're going to learn how to run or you're going to learn to play tennis or you're going to learn how to write short stories that are 10 pages long because I wanted something that also had no frame of reference for me. Like I knew that if I had gone off to another communications job 
whatever issues to that point about 50% of this is right and 50% of this is wrong, maybe some of that would incrementally get better or worse. But I would also have this idea of what success was. I felt like I'd gotten too tied to achievement and too tied to my identity being tied to my work. And continuing in the same industry in a similar job, that wasn't going to improve that. And and so I was like, go off and learn this skill that you're probably not going to be that great at and that maybe one day you could be good at, but it's going to take time. And you, you'll have no way to tell it other than just the, the joy of writing and like learning a new skill. You'll have no – there won't be this voice in your head comparing it to everything else. So I applied and, and I got in. And I paid, I remember, like in, it was in April or March, I paid the $100 deposit. And from that moment, it all of a sudden just became possible. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. How did money factor into your decision to step away from Google? It's driven my decisions a sense of I always felt like I had to make enough that if all of a sudden everything dropped out from under me, I would have enough savings or a safety net or something that I that I would be okay for a little bit of time. The I mean even when I was when I made that job where I picked the in New York that the 32,000 a year over a 2-year period I think I saved like 15 or 20,000 dollars of of my 18 months of salary during that job because I spent no money because I was convinced I'm always convinced there's like an apocalypse looming and I had to make sure that I could still live, you know. So certainly, like in those early years, it was what is the job that can pay me the most that I can continue to 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 be safe, so to speak. Later, though, when I left to go do the startup, startups generally fail. You know, I didn't expect, and I took a massive, massive pay cut, like huge pay cut, to go work there. Not having a lot of cash early on in my career, I think, made me much more um, relaxed about not. Like, I, I knew, I, I think by the time I left Google, I was making quite a bit of money. I think I also felt like I was making too much money. I just don't think these jobs should actually pay the way they are. And I knew I was not living at the level of the salary I was making. And I, so I felt, I felt comfortable. And I also knew that if, if ever again, if everything, uh, if ever, there was a disaster that happened and I needed to immediately start working in a communications job, I could get a communications job and, and start working. So I felt, I felt pretty good about that. It didn't feel like... I left a ton of money on the table because that's how you stay in these companies too is that there's all this unvested equity um, that keeps getting re-upped and re-upped. So, yes, I walked away from a lot of stuff, but at some point you walk away. Like there will always be unvested equity. And so I think it's just a calculation of what's your current situation and how much can you stomach. So what are your tips on leaving a job? Obvious caveat that there are a lot of people that have to stay in their current jobs for financial reasons and personal reasons. And like you have to look at that stuff first and make sure that you can accommodate and provide for those needs. But if you have flexibility beyond that and are contemplating a change, I think the I think you have to be really honest with yourself about what you're solving for. Like I saw over and over again when I was a manager that people would come into the into my office 
and dance around what they wanted, any other number of subjects, but what they had really come there to talk about. And those, it, and even if it wasn't explicitly about leaving their job or career, a lot of the, a lot of the things actually that were focused around career pointed at different kinds of needs, right? Sometimes it's the need for recognition. Sometimes it's the need for for money, um, or for power. And people have, we all have, I think, a really hard time articulating that because we have certain judgments, or society has certain judgments about which of those are good and which of those are bad. And you can have a whole conversation about should we value achievement so much? Of course we shouldn't. Should we value constantly improving your salary even once you're past a point where you could live just fine? No, of course not. But that's actually not productive when you're trying to figure out how to change your job. And and so because we don't feel comfortable talking about those things, we don't always solve for what we really need to solve for. And because, I mean, who, when you think of all the people you've worked with, how many people are transparent about the fact that, like, actually their ego matters a ton and they want to be recognized for what they're doing? And actually they wouldn't – they might even sacrifice an extra 5000 a year, whatever the amount is, if their name was just in the equivalent of, like, in lights all the time, right? right. And yet for other people that doesn't matter at all and they're really interested in new experiences. Like they want to switch jobs every 18 months and they're very happy – not you know getting getting the necessary recognition for the work they're doing, but they don't need this huge ego play. But um, but you really need to cater to their curiosity, their intellectual curiosity. And so I think that's a problem. Do you think that we are well positioned to know for ourselves what it is that motivates us? Would you be able to say for yourself, "I knew that this is the thing that made me light up"? I think yeah. I think looking back on it, and certainly by the time I I had was I think willing to confront. Because I kept on telling, I kept on not addressing those issues, right? Like I'd go for a, another job interview at a place that actually was not was was worse than Google in so many ways, like culturally and the job fit and everything. Um, but I would go interview there because I'd be like, well, maybe the problem is Google. The problem wasn't Google, right? The problem was me in relation to Google. But it just it, I found all it was so much easier, even though time wise it felt like it was significant to go on another job interview or to. Tell myself, okay, you just need to get past, say, Google I.O., like a big developer conference. It was always easier to set these external things rather than actually look at yourself and say, all right, well, what? when are you the happiest in your job? When are you the least happy in your job? Um, and when I, when I could come up with a list of the mental list, I guess, of the things that I was least happy about, it would be things like you hate the fact that someone can call, like calls you regularly at 11 o'clock at night or at 5 in the morning because there's some sort of PR crisis happening somewhere. You actually hate the fact that a lot of PR people, for example, thrive on crisis and instability of the job. Like you never know what you're going to get. I I am a person who eats oatmeal every single day for breakfast and will for the rest of my life. I love it. I want I, like the most uninspiring thing about me, probably like on, I want more stability in my job. Like I definitely want a good portion of my workday to be oatmeal. You know, and like, so probably working in a job where there are so many crises around the clock, maybe not the best job for you, you know. But again, it took me a long time to, because I was so wound up in what my identity was or what my job was, how do you say, wait, you actually just should not even be in this industry, maybe, <laughs> you know. And so I think, yeah, it's just having to figure out what what motivates you in life. And I think we are all motivated by very, very different things. And if you can get at that core then everything becomes much, much easier. And then, you know, if it's money or if it's achievement, okay, go solve for that and then figure out this longer life process of how you get away from that because that's ultimately not going to make you happy. But in the short term, it'll at least help you figure out what your next job needs to be. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. 
You know, it's been two years since I recorded with Jess, so I checked in with her to see how things were going now. And the answer is they're going great. She has a startup called Audio Shake that uses AI to help artists and labels find new sources of revenue. And she's writing for the New York Times and Time and for herself on a new novel. In her email, she wrote, I still work a ton, but it feels like my thing my baby. And it's extraordinary to me still, even two years on, just what freedom there is in being in control of my own creative vision. That is a good reinvention story. See you next Monday. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Laura Sim. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Uriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Our magical listener extraordinaire this week is Victoria Taylor. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday, and thanks for listening.